I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Well, welcome back to the final chapter of U2Y. We took a bit of a break to decompress and get ourselves ready for these final two episodes and I say two episodes it is a single uh, epilogue but I have decided to break it up into two parts to make it easier to digest we have the first part which is the question and answers section where Steve will answer questions that you have kindly submitted and we got some good questions so we are truly grateful to you for sending them in the second portion will be a general chat, a final chat between myself and Steve about the show, looking back over it, and some more into his later career. I'll make this intro short, I'll talk a little bit more in the second part, but the important thing to tell you is that the official store is now open. If you go to stephenaveril.com forward slash store, you can see we have made available this limited edition set of prints from Steve's time in the desert with U2 for the Joshua Tree album cover uh, shoot, photo shoot. Okay, so let's get started. Okay. Alrighty, so first question from Ed. He actually has a couple of questions built into the topic of the seven inch singles from Joshua Tree and the Rattle and Hum era. Um, he says everything feels so consistent in that campaign for Joshua Tree from the LP to the singles and the tour program my question is were the 7 inch singles as satisfying and rewarding to explore once you had the visual language of the LP resolved particularly thinking of still haven't found what I'm looking for a cover as it uses vertical black bars and gold strips framing the shot of Larry I think yes. Once the once the initial work was done on the Josh Tree, and that was established, uh, and then I uh, became there was talk of four singles. So it was a matter of trying to um, find four singles that uh, of each member of the band, one of each member of the band, that would actually fit in with the overall feel of the of the album. And I think the idea of using the vertical or the horizontal strips depended on the photograph itself. Uh, obviously, the shot of Larry, whatever, wouldn't have worked with. Um, them going across the top, it would have been a very cropped shot. So we're trying to give the photograph as much of its original um, uh, as it was shot as possible. Well, what we see in these singles is that you're willing to step away or step outside of the idea of the horizontal cinematic widescreen border effect for these singles to break away from that motif. Yeah, it's it, it's definitely the guiding factor in the whole thing. But it's it's it's. I think you really, for me, uh, you need to just keep an open mind and look at each picture individually and see which is the best way to treat that picture. But at the same time, there is a, a universality to the to the four the four of them. They fit well within the context of the original album. He also asks about the Rattle and Hum singles, and just a reminder that you didn't actually work on those, but you were involved in some of the preliminary um, brainstorming. 
and were involved somewhat with the suggestion to have the cover of Rattling Home shot in a studio. So he asks, was the shot of Larry for the uh, Desire single also a studio shot? And I, I don't think that was a studio shot. I imagine it was probably just from rehearsals or before the show. Or, but it's definitely, I think, um, not, not an Anton shot. Uh, to my recollection because I wasn't at that shoot that shoot was really just Edge and Bono recreating that image I think the shot of Larry came from a studio session when Anton would have been photographing the band as they rehearsed for or recorded the album from Jennifer we kind of touched on this a little bit but maybe it's a good thing to round out why uh, it's a long-standing question by U2 fans why was there no instantly recognizable universal U2 logo ever created such as the Rolling Stones did with the lips or the mouth logo or the Who's bullseye like logo what is the reasoning behind that decision especially when an instantly recognizable universal logo is so useful from a marketing perspective Okay, well, my answer to that is, go back to uh, the origin, I think um, the very name, U2, is a recognisable logo in itself. And whatever way it's rendered, whatever typography is used, it's still instantly recognisable as that band. Um, And it just meant that we had the freedom to... um, adapt and change uh, and again I, I go back to the point that I always looked at the uh, the image you were going to use and tried to fit the typography around the image whereas if you were a Motorhead or uh, Chicago a band that's essentially used the same uh, logo throughout their entire graphic career um, it's very limiting because you can only do a certain type of cover um, that shows a logo like that so I think the freedom of just recognizing that U2 is a logo in itself uh is um, what we try to achieve. So I suppose, I mean, she's, she's seeking more clarity here. And, and I guess it is probably a longstanding burning question for you two fans. And, you, you know, you, I think the answer, as you've just described, is kind of simple, which is like you recognize that the, the combination of the, the, the letter and the number and its, its simplicity is, is its logo based, you know, it, it builds into the idea of a logo in whatever format it takes but maybe if i could follow on some questions with that would be was there a conscious decision then not to have a logo yeah i don't think we ever uh, excluded the fact that a logo um, might be useful but um i think for logos to to uh have some sort of personality they need a little bit more than just the, the two the letter and the number um so uh, we wouldn't have been against and there are various uh uses of typography uh say the actone baby and uh hand lettering that they've reoccurred uh on on merchandising throughout the the campaign uh, the nearest thing we had to a logo idea was the idea of the three three symbols t-shirts and that really uh from its inception around the time of Zeropa has um carried on and every every time we there was a tour there was an uh, a request for a three symbols t-shirt um so those symbols became recognizable by fans i think most of the graphics that we have whether they be abstract imagery or pictures of the band are immediately recognizable to fans so as i say the logo and the band themselves became that identity well i think the effect is that of kind of like a branding exercise in, in, in like marketing terms, which is a very cold and clinical term. And I guess also considering your background, beginning in an advertising agency, that you have a lot of elements built into the visual pre- representation and presentation 
of the band, for example, various icons from the sleeves and beyond, and also, you know, using Peter Owen, the boy from the boy sleeve on the war sleeve. Like, these are like branding exercises where you are drawing on familiar elements where a logo may traditionally take that place. You know, the lo- like logos are used for identifiability and familiarity, whereas you have all these other elements, um, including the band themselves becoming kind of iconic. Yeah, well, if you go if you go back to to Boy, and think about that, if that cover had an, had a large logo stuck in the corner or on top of the face, whatever, it wouldn't be the same cover. Yeah. Um, and the fact that, in fact, it's very difficult at first glance to see the fact that it has you two in 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 the boy's hair, um, Peter Rowan. Um, it it it's it's the image that creates the the recognizable icon. A logo on top of that would have taken away from that overall look and feel. Yeah, and I think effectively each era has its own logo. Each record has its own logo, and I yeah, think each, lo- cam- each, each album was a campaign to us. We we mm-hmm. developed. Um, and it meant, like the band, we were moving forward all the time. We were kind of looking at at, at uh, how we would best express the, the mood of that album in typography and imagery and everything else. So we, we, you know, we kept we kept moving with that. I think designing logos is also one of the hardest tasks of in, in the graphic design world because you're effectively, I mean, obviously brands um, update and adapt their logos as, as time passes, but you run the risk of of dating your work or tying it to an era um, on one hand. On the other hand, if you're a band like Motorhead, then it just, you just, you just commit to it and it's kind of becomes timeless and classic in its own right. Yeah, but the, 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 the challenge there is even though it's the same essential logo on all the Motorhead album covers, it actually changes each time. It's, it's rendered differently mm-hmm. uh, so that it, create, it creates that uh, sense of, of purpose. I mean, if you people talk about the Rolling Stones logo, but um, it's that actually appears on very few album covers, you know, occasionally a live album or a compilation mm-hmm. album, but uh, they didn't use it themselves. It became a merchandising uh, triumph. Uh, mm. It was used on T-shirts, and it was recognised. It was used on you know, badges and everything like that. But it it, it rarely appeared on album covers. But I, I think what you're what you're drawing on there is the idea that 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 there's almost like a design kind of zeitgeist that 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 things that are peripheral to the central campaigns get absorbed into our psyches as being the central thing. So with the lips, for example, in Rolling Stones, it's easy to call that a logo, but really that was used, as you say. In, in supplementary materials like t-shirts posters but um it, its presence as a logo kind of, it kind of became galvanized much later in their career and i think logos are most interesting when they take the place of text when a logo becomes identifiable by itself which leads me on to something i'd like to point out in relation to this chat that in I believe the first episode or or very early on in our chats, we're talking about the name and you, you talked about how like you could have you could have this combination of you and two huge on a poster, you know, because there's so few characters that you can blow it up and it could be bold and big. And yet I'd like to note that you never do that, with the exception of maybe a poster or or I would even go as far as saying that I don't think you by your own hand ever used it in a large bold way but marketing departments may have taken that and ran with it 
Yeah, to a, to a degree. I mean, there are, if you go back over years of T-shirts, there are some T-shirts which have very, very large you using a sans a condensed typeface, which would almost fill the whole front of the T-shirt. with, 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 with uh, But you did, view. and I mean, I think this is like commendable. You did resist the urge to put a big juicy logo on an album cover sleeve. Well, I mean, yes, through the sleeves, definitely. But I mean, if you, if you go back to some of the early posters, it's very big and, and large on the poster because it's 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 you know that's the what they need to establish in the early days uh, of the band's existence to sort of say this is the name of the band, this is the band. Um, so yes, it, it, it is used in certain in certain ways. But um, as I say, you could if 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 the band were moving in a certain direction and they wanted something that I think they themselves never wanted a huge big U two. On, on the mm. cover, I mean, to the point of like Act on Baby, where it's it's not there at all. It's just the the, the only reference to you two immediately is on the rings on Edge's finger. But um, okay, from Alex, another simple question: What's mightier, the pencil or the pixel? Um, well, in these days, it's the pixel because uh, most of your ideas are created on a computer screen. Um, it's been a long time since I've created an idea for an album cover on with a pencil. If I go back to some of the notebooks I had around the time of the various album covers, you can see sketches of ideas for covers um, being, being being done with a marker or a pencil, uh, and that became the genesis of an idea that we developed if it looked like it was uh, creating something. But certainly, um, there's an equal problems. But in these days, I think it's the pixel that's actually beaten the pencil. Which do you think has more value? Like, which do you think is is offers more to, to you as a designer? I mean, I don't mean that in a technical term, but like in terms of getting an idea. Um, I would think again, it, you, you go back to the computer because everybody's sense of realization has become much more about a finished looking sleeve. I mean, I can go back to some of the mock-ups done for even say Joshua Tree, where if you look at them, the, the things like where the type would go is just a few lines squiggled on the back and that's where the titles go and that's where the credits go. Uh, it, it wasn't realized in the sense, as you get into later albums, you're basically producing the full artwork to show people how it would look. But it's not, uh, is there then, not something kind of vibrant and special about that? I mean, do you miss those those days? I, I do miss those days, and it's not simply about album cover design. I think all clients um, were, were in the same. I remember campaigns for when I worked in the advertising business. There's campaigns that you know a person. I remember one particular campaign where uh, an agency that I was involved with did this massive presentation for a client, and um, another agency did it. Did it and simply brought in the creative director, brought in a sketchbook and, with a few sketches, and said, "Well, this is the, our concept with, with the whole thing." And they won it because the client then felt that what we as an agency had done was so realized there was no room for them to interpret. So that's true of an album cover. You kind of have to give it enough space to to be allowed it to breathe and move forward, you know. But, you know, hmm. people want to see the, the finished leave now. They want to see what the typography is going to be, what the picture is going to be like, what treatments you might use on the picture. So you essentially, to present an idea, have to design the cover. Well, I, I, I kind of think that's a striking statement in itself because I think that's in some ways the antithesis to how commercial creativity works by and large. And I think that you're talking about it from the unique position of being in a in a relationship based on trust, based on belief and in the collaboration 
So you were able to be vulnerable and be and were able to submit ideas in their infancy, maybe even submit bad ideas because you had this underlying understanding that it would lead to conversation and therefore collaboration. And I think that's why the relationship, you know, thrived for so long, because there was a trust and understanding and willingness to to share ideas and have ideas grow based on the synergy and symbiosis of it, of it all. Whereas my own experience in the creative industries is that people want three options as complete as possible so they can put their finger on the one they like the best. Uh, well, in that particular case, uh, it was simply to, you knew that um, you needed to, the talk was about certain other forms of music uh, uh, and genre design, and you had to show them these to for them to eliminate them. Otherwise, in the back of their head, they're still talking about these being an option to go down. When you show them that many covers, and we had the time to, to do that, um, they immediately, within a space of, say, half an hour, had eliminated 90% of those things because they see that what you're saying is correct, that this is not right for them. It's got nothing to do with the band. As well, is, isn't that an interesting concept then, that so much of, of creativity is about showing what doesn't work or ruling something out rather than... Yeah, yeah. People, I mean, even today, you know, you have situations where you 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 come up with a design and somebody looks and says, "No, don't like it." The, the, what you need, <clears throat> and what we had with you two, was a process of discussion in the most part, so that you can say, "This is what you know. This is going to be, and this is how it's going to work." Yeah. Luca from Canada is in a band, a high school band, and they are having trouble finding a name. Can you please give them a name? Uh, <laughs> possibly, you know, I never know. I mean, I, I still uh, jot down, jot down names when when something strikes me as being interesting. Um, the 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 truth is, be it the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, whatever band name you you possibly have, the Who or, or the Clash or the Sex Pistols, the band themselves become that um, personality with usage, with people understanding who they are and what what it's all about. Well, my own advice having been in bands for so long and having had to name quite a few of them is to pick a name that sounds good, that feels good, that doesn't necessarily have meaning. Case in point, you too. Um, the meaning quite often, if not always, comes from what the music becomes and what the fans make of your name. Don't don't look for a meaning in a name. I think that, that that's the wrong approach. I think that, that the meaning has to come organically. Maybe just you don't need meeting. Maybe it's just again, it just feels good and sounds good on a poster or whatever. Yeah, well, some of my favorite names are just combinations of um, words that you wouldn't normally put together. You know. Yeah. Question from Bill. This is a good question. When I, I I was thinking about myself. Hi, Steve. I was wondering what input, if any, you had regarding concert ticket design. They were great to keep as a memento of a show. It's a shame now that that seems to all have but disappeared due to electronic tickets and. Um, I, I say that um, having recently found my ticket for the the Zeropa show in Dublin, and it's it's got design elements on it, and it feels kind of like a real collectible thing. Uh, I I think we um, said about design tour passes, tickets, uh, even dressing room signage. We 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 kind of looked at everything that I think when the band. Uh, 
signed with a bigger uh, production company like Live Nation or whatever, that all sort of moved into the hands of the, of, of the people. We used to always design, for instance, the, the tour itinerary. Uh, we would design that. So every aspect of the visual part of, of the tour, up until, say, I would imagine around Acton we, we, and Zoropa, we designed all the aspects of it. Including, including the tickets. Including the tickets, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's a shame because even in, in your own collection, there's a few things like I, there's a there's a ZZ top ticket from RDS Simoncourt um, from the Eliminator tour, and it has a little foil debossed uh, muscle car on the ticket. It's a very beautiful thing, you know. And a lot of tickets and and passes uh, had to have some kind of um, uh, non printables that yeah. you, you just couldn't photocopy it. So you you were always trying to uh, incorporate. Well, it came it came as a request from the from the people selling the tickets that there's something about the ticket that it makes it quite difficult to actually just copy. Yeah. Nathan has a question, a simple question. Um, very broad again maybe we'll try and keep it as succinct as possible he says hi Steve which is your favorite era of designing for the band so maybe that's less so a specific sleeve rather a a collection of sleeves or, or a time collection a couple of years maybe um hard to to pinpoint that but I I I I, I would say that the Boy October War were very uh, important to me, building a relationship with the band and also getting some acclaim outside of Ireland for those design um, issues so that they, they were a certain confidence builder for both myself and the band when they were when they were competing against all like the war album cover won the music week magazine best full price album that year and that was competing against every other cover from a full price album released that year so when you actually achieve that it it cements the that you're that they're not dealing with somebody who doesn't really understand the basics of of what is needed um and for me it's it's they understand that I, what i'm what i'm suggesting and bringing forward is working question from connor you two have struck me as a band who really push themselves and are never happy to sit on their laurels. Uh, has there have there ever been times when everything was on the verge of being thrown out purely to push harder, or when artwork was reconsidered and changed considerably at a late stage? Was there ever a time when the direction was halted halfway through and rethought? Um, I think that uh, uh, the pop album cover was one that. Um, uh, was quite difficult because there was a number of different concepts that were taken right to the the almost the final stages uh, with a different title and a different feel, and then we had to very quickly do it. Um, and and the title pop itself came up very very. Uh, it was discussed earlier on, but it suddenly became the title, and that's why uh, Sean and myself had to really think quite quickly on our feet with that and get something done. I think that uh, the unforgettable fire happened like that because the the um, the label Island Records had presented a number of designs for the unforgettable fire, which um, they had had heavily requested that they be involved in it and uh, I was called out of the that particular meeting and told can you have a cover by tomorrow um, so that's true and then um, Atomic Bomb uh, was also re- resisted hugely by the record company they thought it was a really sort of um, dangerous title to have 
around the time when when there was uh, political tensions in the world. So all those um, had to be, we had to have a backup plan ready in case there was something that happened. Um, you you had to be aware of that so that you, you know, if atomic bomb hadn't gone through as it was, something else would have had to replace itself very, very quickly. Well, if I can add to that, I would say that they probably have never really settled on anything necessarily. But of course, there are times when you just have to let things go and you may not be fully, fully convinced that this is the best possible way forward. But as an alternative, perfectionism is a very destructive thing. And without getting one idea done, you can't go do the next idea. Yeah. And uh, certainly in, in once we get past, say, war, then uh, the band, generally speaking, would want to see not just one idea, but um, two or three ideas, even if they're very, very uh, loosely put together, they'd want to sort of look at them and say, well, mm, that's a possibility. Like there was, as we said, in, in Joshua, where there was a couple of early covers that were more about landscape, sort of ECM style. And there was others where, where the gatefold splits across and the, and the image goes right across that. So there was um, always a number of options given. Also, when you add time pressure to these scenarios, quite often in creative situations, you're presenting two, three options and someone's putting their finger on one and saying this one. So to your recollection, there wasn't any project that had a big change in tone towards the end or after bigger decisions had already been made? Um, I think probably there was uh, at times, but um, if you consider that uh, that the projects for you to, considering the time that they were in the studio, often uh, in the studio recording for a year to 18 months, there was always uh, situations whereby uh, very, very loose ideas would come up. Then the music would change, their direction would change, they would want something very different. So yeah, you're, you're continually evolving it. And um, because their delivery of artwork was inevitably on the very final hour, you had to work right up. I mean, there's a number of occasions when Sean and I had to travel to to London to work in the production house and titles and running orders were only coming to us literally a few hours before we had to deliver the artwork. Was it a case for um, Songs of Innocence uh, that that there was late decision, decisions made. And I, and I know that, that that campaign was largely kind of driven by Jefferson Hack, but with the, with the white label sleeve that came out for the kind of digital, this is, this is the infamous album that was, was, was put on, you know, the iPhones and iPods, but that white label sleeve, was that, a, was that a late in the day decision for its initial release? Like, do you have any rec- recollections on that process at all? Uh, it, it was an idea, like um, almost uh, going back to the late 60s uh, bootleg albums, the sort of The Who with the Isle of Wight or, or Jimi Hendrix or Bob Dylan, and where things were just written and stamped and, and, and put out as a, uh, a teaser for a, a release. Um, and it happened a lot in the um, remix market, uh, you know, uh, white label sleeves went into these uh, 12-inch remixes where often just white labels with scribbling a name on it. So another question from Connor, which is um, about the band's look and about you two's uh, use of a stylist. Um, he wonders, when did they start using um, a stylist and they never seemed afraid to push what the clothes were and kind of giving the photographer something to work with? Uh, I think the concept of a stylist came in, uh, I'm trying to think back now in my head when I'm conscious, uh, certainly um, 
Joshua Tree onwards, there was a stylist involved. I think there was a stylist involved before that uh, in, in as much as uh, somebody would com- possibly come in and, uh, and help them out. Um, yeah, so it, it wasn't really a, a conscious part of the team until they started to tour in a big way. Obviously, in the earlier days, they were traveling in a van and there was they were very tight. There was the band plus Joe Hurley and, and, and the road crew and things like that. And it wasn't a, a, a specific stylist involved until uh, two or three albums into the, into the career. There was a lot of interest in the Joshua Tree episode and the trip and I have two questions one from Owen and another from Jack and both are based around the intrigue of that time Owen himself talks about bunking off school and going to sit in the windmill lane uh, car park to hopefully see the band and talk to the band which he which he did most days and he remembers from his journals that December 13th 1986 was particularly kinetic there was a lot of activity that day and then Jack also asks about dates relate in relation to that trip. He's looking for the the route taken on the trip, and so there is a there is a videotape of more or less the whole trip. And I believe he's flying into Reno, they first travel to Bodie, then they traveled to through Joshua Tree Park where they find the Joshua Tree, and finally it's a Brisky Point and Death Valley, and I guess then back to Reno. Or else back to California. So he also says, this is Jack, also says that guessing by the shape of the moon in some of the promo shots, this would be would have been around the 16th of December. And so I also had realized that you had kept diaries from 1976 onwards. And I went to see, could I find these entries? And lo and behold, one diary is missing. 1986 is nowhere to be found. So I wasn't able to confirm this. My second port of call was to give Mark Coleman an email, who was on the trip with you, of course. And he also said that he was unable to find his diaries from the time. It was then at this point that you realized that there was a Peter Gabriel show happening in Inglewood, which I determined to be the 16th of December. And we also had been talking with Anton, who remembered the trip as being about 2.5 days. So this effectively confirms that it was probably uh, landing on the 13th of December, 86, and departing on the 16th with the final night spent at Peter Gabriel. Yes, uh, and I think, uh, it, as you said, uh, it was the 15th and 16th, and I, I, I thought about it afterwards, and I think that it was the 16th was the final day of the Peter Gabriel show, yeah. and um, Bono was very keen to see that show. Certainly that week was the week that it, it took place. We have a general question here from William. He asks, are, are there any designs that, that weren't used that you wish had been? Um, I Again, I think that um, we have discussed uh, October in that particular podcast or episode. And uh, I think that the um, I had some ideas for the uh, October um, sleeve. I thought there was some very interesting shots taken in an old um, coal warehouse um that i felt uh would would were quite strong but i think that the the overall feel that uh the band wanted to achieve was similar to a 60s sort of bob dylan look with the titles running down the side as a lot of the albums in the 60s had so i think that they wanted to do that but originally the october sleeve was supposed to be a gatefold 
Um, yeah. And uh, it, the band were to appear on the front and back uh, in a continuous, seamless-looking image. Uh, yeah. But that was nixed by the record company, so it, it became what it, what it was then. Yeah, and that, his next question then was if there was one design you could go back to and reimagine what would be. And what would I, do. I think... Uh, um, in terms, for me personally, I don't think the typography on October was, it was strong, but I don't think I had the reference sources that I really wanted to because there was a reference to October uh, and is also the, the month and the season and also to things like the October Revolution. And I think there was a slight hint of a, a, a feel that uh, tied in with that, that never really was realized to the degree that it might have been. But um, I still think it works as a cover. And in fact, we actually put together a kind of a what, what, what if for the October cover over on your website. If you go to stephenaverill.com forward slash U2Y and follow the episode guide for October, you can see a couple of retroactive mock-ups that represent what we're talking about. So Ken would like to know more about the imagery on the one single sleeve which was the buffalo going off the cliff um well that um was a image that was um i think um catherine owens and adam were both very interested in contemporary art uh and that is a image a photograph of a um a 3d model as, as far as i can remember by david wanarowicz um, who was an AIDS activist and artist. Uh, it's in some museum, and I think uh, the picture was taken, and uh, it was just the idea of um, the way society was like a herd of buffalo going over their, the hill and killing themselves with, with the way they were living in yeah, society. Yeah, there's a video, there's a video uh, installation it, it, as well from, from of, of that those those buffalo going on. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Um, and, and that subsequently, that... Uh, analogy was was one of the aspects we used when we did the the greatest hits album later on that the buffalo were in that there was a lot of footage of buffalo that were used on the on in the the stage show as well and that was sourced by the the team uh, who were doing that so it was a very striking image and the idea of making it um richer and more intense by uh, by printing it on on a gold background tied in with earlier u2 um, color schemes, but also if it had just been a black and white photograph, it might have been a bit too stark. It needed that sense of depth. Yeah. From Kevin, pop album. Can you please elaborate more about the yellow arc idea? It looks like half of a McDonald's arc, and it certainly transmits this sense of pop, fast food consumerism. Did the band receive a claim from McDonald's similar to the Playboy logo history? Um. The 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 arc the, the the that actually was a something that uh, obviously referenced um, to a degree McDonald's, but it also if you go back to to, to the fifties and sixties, you see the arts used in motel signage and various other things around America. Very prominent shape that that was used there. I think that initially came into into our vocabulary from Willie Williams and 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 the design team on the stage and we translated it across to the album cover. Um, it wasn't something that, you know, I don't think it initiated with us in, in, in the very first space. Yeah. I think that was a classic, classic example of the stage design coming back into the sleeve design. Um, 
just a, a secondary question about stylists from, so this is from Kevin. Um, so he's talking about the Octum baby era and a style and use of stylist. Um, for example, was it the edges idea to wear the jeans with stars and the, the rings with the U, you and the two, like were these, were these, um, I guess what he's asking is were the, were say the rings a, a concept of edges of, of, of the stylists of someone else's. Well, uh, the, the, at that point in time, um, because obviously the band had moved to a different level of um, uh, experience in touring. There was stylists, but not only were there stylists, there was a number of um, high-profile designers, clothing designers, who were involved in in what was done. So a lot of these uh, items were sort of delivered to a... Uh, before the tour started, a dressing room, and I was at some of those situations where there was racks of clothes which were tried on, and and uh, people began to find the ones that they began to feel comfortable uh, in wearing. So I would suggest that those uh, jeans were something that was supplied to the band to to uh, not necessarily for edge, but simply something that they were there to try on and see how they worked. Although each individual member had a certain ongoing style that was kind of catered for in the stylist. Yeah, I think I think people shouldn't be under the illusion that a band goes out and buys their clothes. You know, it, it's all it's usually a band of this stature. It's usually based around a design team, and there usually would be mass masses of wardrobe presented to them for them to pick their clothes and to sort of define a look, a cohesive look with the rest of the band. It's definitely a a a purposeful uh, aesthetic choice. It's not just here's what I wore that day. Um, yeah, well, on the on the, on that particular tour, I think um, Fintan Fitzgerald was very much the the stylist of the day. You know, he was very involved in in bringing in people he knew in 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 the fashion industry and and making choices himself. And you know, it, the the stylist's job is to sort of pick things that they think the member of the band, each member of the band, might like, and then they present to each member, and they're, and they're then they try them on to do it that way. So really? yeah, from that point almost, and even earlier than that. Um, from from the I remember Joshua Tree, uh, Marion was involved in 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 clothing choices and what they might wear and what the look might be. That's that probably was as big a discussion with them as as possibly what the, the design of the album cover might be because well, it, it is a very significant I, part of, of of the presentation of a band, and I think it's a very significant role. Um, you know, you, whether it's Fintan and then, and then I think Sharon. Um, Blankson was involved from pop onwards and is still with the band. Like they very, the band have to place a lot of trust in, in, in the stylist to, you know, deliver them something that's not too trendy, that's unique. Yeah. And, 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 and it's, it's, it's a trial and error thing because sometimes uh, an outfit would be chosen um, and the, uh, the me- a member of the band or the band would stand in front of a camera, get a Polaroid taken and say, no, this doesn't look right. This isn't, this isn't working. And there'd be a quick change. So, I mean, I mean, going back to my own experience, uh, which is quite amusing, when we, when we founded the Radiator from Space, what we wore became more important to us in some ways as, as how, you know, it, it, it was an identity of the band as much as the music was. Even though we didn't have the budget for the, for outside stylists, we, we we tried to find a look that we felt you know was right for what we were trying to do. Well, when you're talking about the pre-internet era and someone's flicking through a, a music periodical or like the NME, you know, you, all you have is those split-second moments when someone before someone turns a page. That if your photograph creates some kind of sense of intrigue, that's that's the way in sometimes. Um, 
which is very yeah well the the classic bands the bands that everybody turns to when they're talking um, about photography uh the Beatles, the Stones, up to the Who, up to the Clash or the Pistols, those bands have a very identifiable look that captures something about what the band is about and what the music is about. And if you can get a band to do that or to be that, uh, it's great. And not every band is that. I've worked with a lot of bands who just simply don't have that visual awareness. Question from Tony, Tony Clayton Lee. When you presented the mock-up, designs and or other illustrative material for each item single album poster t-shirt did all four members of you two pitch in their thoughts and he says this is his opinion here that he asks because it struck me that larry never seemed particularly interested in anything um, else except uh, you know playing drums in a rock and roll band and this is not of course take away from anything but it just seems to me that design uh, principles weren't as appealing to him um of course, they all they all pitched in, and none of the none of the covers would go through unless all four members were happy with what was there. Uh, Larry would certainly have opinions about what was there, and um, for a, a period of time, uh, Larry was in charge of merchandising, so he was very much involved in 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 how the the tour programs and and t shirts looked. Um, and you know, I said before, each individual member, if you followed the path of their 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 thought process and what they considered to be right for the band, you would probably go down quite a different path. But all the album covers that were uh, released were the point where all four members of the band could say, "Yes, this is good. We're happy with this." Yes, and I think that's another again kind of myth to dispel, and it goes back to what we said very early on in the, in the show that. You know, you two is is an equal stakes enterprise. It's 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 a four way share um, of ideas and and creativity. So you know, you might be under the illusion that maybe more ideas are coming from Bono and Edge, but actually, um, everything goes four ways. There's there's a lot of input from all four of them. A side question from from Tony here. Um, he's wondering about Gavin. That's Gavin Friday being part of decision making process on finished designs, um, as he has a keen interest in art, etc. And I think that's just to elaborate on that. I think that you know nowadays Gavin is is officially titled as as the creative director. Well, uh, Gavin came in, I think, um, uh, post of the Jefferson ha- Jefferson Hack era, um, and Gavin came in to take on that role because again he's somebody who's closer to the band um, in the same way that myself or myself and Sean would have, would have been. That there's an understanding, a deeper understanding of them as people and what they were, where their their own visual language makes sense so gavin is a part of that process and has been since that point onwards i think this all goes back again to the idea of trust i think gavin is a is a trust is someone that they trust he's not only a friend and has known them since you know since their their youth that he is a person that is trusted fundamentally and as well as being a person who's interested in design and art Yes, uh, from his own point, as an artist himself, yeah, and and uh, Gavin was was always somebody who would uh, look at something and say, "For me," he said, um, "You know, this doesn't work. I don't like this. It's it's going backwards. It's doing something else." So he had an opinion that wasn't always what the band wanted to hear, but it was a necessary opinion in a lot of cases just to debate that uh, point rather than anything else. I've, I've, and I think from what I understand is that Gavin's. Um, you know, strength is 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 his honesty. I think he's one of the few very rationed voices um that's been there throughout that will tell tell it exactly how it is which is probably a very helpful thing for for an enterprise like that yeah for any band to have that input
question from Sherry from the much missed at u2.com fan site. She asks, can we talk about the various side album projects and EPs like Wide Awake in America, Wide Awake in Europe and some of the 12 and 7 inch singles? Well, I can just say that we were we were being fairly disciplined in, in our focus here that we weren't going to shift too far into singles and EPs unless we felt it relevant. And also there were there were quite a few um, smaller side releases that were handled handled by label in-house design departments based on, you know, Steve's design bible, um, such as Wide Awake. No, I mean, Wide Awake wasn't done by, wasn't done by ourselves. It was um, designed and photographed by um, the photographer uh, at the time. Um, so, yeah, certain things occur and you're not, you're not really aware that they're coming out or they're, they're being released yeah. uh, in, in the whole uh, U2 camp. You might not know about these things. Record company would have certain uh, reissues or things they want to put out uh, that they were done at a certain time. So there, those things were outside of our particular remit at the time. Yeah, I think, I think the, and this is what sort of confused me in my own research for the show was, was that, you know, there was a lot of side side work that wasn't specifically coming from your hand, but was coming from the design Bible that had been created. So it felt like your design. Um, and those would be good examples of that. Um, yeah, well, I mean, certainly when, when I went over to Los Angeles and met with the uh, the design team in Paramount, they gave me a presentation, uh, which was basically, as they said themselves, feeding back to me my own design concepts. Yes. And also, I think the fact that you're not you're effectively, you never are U2's in-house designer. You're always pitching on a project. So you can't say, okay, everything has to come through us or even everything has to be signed off by me. That wasn't your position. No, uh, it was um, a position given to us uh, in the mid-period when uh, they started to get really annoyed by various promoters in the States doing their versions of posters or their versions of, of press advertising for, for gigs. Um, that, that then became a situation where they insisted that if a person was doing an ad for a gig or for anything, um, they had to run it by us before they could go ahead and do it. Now, the band was obviously often on tour and wasn't around to see these things. So we had to take the role of policing these and saying, no, that's wrong. You've got to do this. Here's the template. Work with the template. Here's the point sizes of type you can use on this. So that became a thing then. It's moved on again, as I say, since they've changed um, their working relationships. That that's, is now handled by just somebody else. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sherry also asks, why was there a design shift of propaganda around the 1999-2000 time to the smaller, more square design? The sudden change with propaganda for the last three issues of the print was a stark design shift, and she would love to hear your thoughts on that. Uh, I'm not 100% sure about that. It it was, I feel, as far as memory serves, it was printed in Ireland for a while, and I think it just became a more economic size um, for it to be done that way. I think that was the, the, I don't think there was any, I can't remember any specific uh, request to change sizes or do, do, do whatever. I think it just simply became something that we did for an economic print process. Would it be the case, would it be the case that there was a shift in design for what, I mean, it could have just been a shift in design just to refresh the magazine with the um, potentiality of, of of propaganda for you know continuing for longer than it did. So the fact that there's only three means that maybe it, it was going to just continue that way, and there only happened to be three more editions. Yeah, no, I think I think the realization that things were moving much more into the online situation, that propaganda w- would would eventually become an online publication, which would eventually be absorbed by the 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 YouTube.com site, which it has done. So that's really what happened there. It was just the fan club communications. Um, they felt were were better handled online than in a print edition. Yeah, and in fact, I can see now just referencing it here that propaganda is considered to have uh, two volumes. So volume one is all in the smaller A4 size, whereas volume two is the slightly smaller size and that has the three. It's a re- full redesign, there's three issues. Um, and actually, I'm reading from U2 Songs here, which is a great resource. It says, the, in the internet age, even a relaunch couldn't save the magazine. By the time the magazine was printed and in hands of readers, much of the content had already appeared on websites. So I think that probably answers the question that the, the design changed, thinking it would continue on full full way through for another full volume, but that the internet just had arrived and it was time to just give it up. Yeah, and that was often the case. We often, we often got, got requests online to say... Um, you know, this information has not been put out by the management or the band themselves, and yet it's already known in the in the web world. Um, and that just was a nail that sort of was struck and said, okay, that yeah. now it's time to move yeah. away from the print. Yeah. It's a shame. A very specific question from Xavier from Barcelona. Months before the release of Pop, we could see some designs teasing the new album. No Pop title on them, but uh, you two expect nothing but the best. And... um you to accept nothing but the best. I even have a t-shirt in my collection with the uh, text and the island logo print on it, print on it. Was this a working title for pop? Um, or was it just a teaser for the, for the, for the campaign? I suspect it was just a marketing department thing. Funnily enough, I have no recollection of that uh, shirt or even a cover designed with that on it. It could have come from Island Records. They might've decided yeah, to. It seems like an in-house marketing kind yeah. of thing, a little teaser campaign. A good question from Joe. Do you listen to music while you work? If so, what do you typically listen to when you're working? Um, do I listen to music? I generally do. Uh, uh, I suppose um, I can't recall um, a specific type of music or 
you know, obviously it's, it's something that fits in with the mood of a studio. And we always had music playing in the studio when we designed um, and probably music that fitted into a slightly more ambient mode rather than pounding rock or whatever, you know, when you're trying to concentrate on, on doing things. And quite often we listen to, if we were given demos or cassettes of the uh, of the U2 work, we listened to that when we were working. But yeah, music was a very much part of our lives and part of the studio's uh, ongoing principles. So um, yes, we would always uh, have some musical uh, accompaniment to our design. Question from Stephen. I'm very interested in the Unforgettable Fire photo shoot when you travelled west with the images um, by Anton, including the castle, Burren, Cliffs of Moher, and then one photo in Anton's book of himself and Bono outside a pub in Ennis Diamond um, that you took. He asks, do you have your own archive of unseen shots um, from that trip that may be exhibited or published at some stage? Um, I can I can kind of feel this to a degree and say that, you know, we do have some things that you have taken, but quite often those shots are are on Anton's camera that that were handed to you that you took the picture of, right? Yeah, I, I I didn't actually have my own camera with me for that that shoot. The, the, the all the outtakes from that particular session would have been uh, Anton's. Yeah, and we do have obviously we have the Joshua Tree real role that you shot, and we have a couple of roles from across the um across your various trips that we'll try and get get online. Yep. Um. So, question from Ken. I would like to know if you were involved with the video content for Zoo TV at all and what the early rehearsals at STS were like. We we didn't really have um, an input into that other than uh, the the design team uh, of Willie Williams and, and, and the other guys who worked on the thing would we would have had meetings and they would have seen what we were doing and they would say, well, we can take that and we can take that and we can use that. The The shopping cart trolley became something that we had kind of created and then they, they used it on online, as I say, and they took the we took the arch from the stage and the, the lemon and things like that, dropped them into the graphic side of things as well. So there was cross-fertilization on on that. Um, from question from James. The key, he's talking about the keys in the docks of Dublin and he talks about walking down uh, Sir John Rogerson's key in 93, aged 18 as diehard U2 fans and those songs sounded even more profound in our ears um, more so after a few pints in the dockers and a tour around the factory which was a rehearsals, rehearsal space with Bono before we got our coach and ferry back to Wales um, How important was that landscape from your perspective and has the rapid disappearance and redevelop of, redevelopment of that place been altogether positive? I've always loved that end of the river. I have a romanticism for those days. Um, it it was a, a familiar landscape. We uh, had our own offices for a long time in John Rodgers' Key, just a few doors away from where the Dockers was. Uh, so we were very aware. It was a very rundown area for a long time. In fact, where the Board Gas Energy Theatre is now, and the Hotel de Marca, I think it's called. Um, that was known as Misery Hill, where they used to um, bury people who were uh, executed. So it was kind of um, in keeping with the history of, of Dublin. Um, and the dock itself was was a, was a very much a working place for a long time. That became very run down. So yeah, it, it, it featured heavily on a number of covers. It featured, um, it's, it's where the... Uh, October imagery is taken 
And uh, we quite often, we, when we did the All That You Can't Leave Behind um, tour, uh, we started the whole journey in in John uh, in that area around around the dock area as well. And it's of course where the band had their rehearsal and recording studio. So it was very much a prominent part of our uh, thinking and visual landscape. I think there's an energy down there that that is discernible. Um, yes, that is unfortunately you know disappearing with the, with the developments. But I also think that just geographically speaking. Um, from where your office was and John, Sir John Rogerson's key, and you can the building is the the, the building is the the Columbia Mills, which is still there. Then not far down from that was the Spanish Arch, which is where you two actually had the principal management headquarters, and then you had Wimble Lane, and it was all within a kind of a two you know two mile a radius, very tight knit you know. area. Yeah, yeah. Um, so Aaron asks, um, this is Aaron from, from U2 Songs, I believe, uh, any particularly interesting fan experiences that come to mind when you look back on all the years of doing this? Uh, when you, when he says fan, fan experiences, I mean, my meeting with fans or, or. Yeah, I guess any interactions with fans or. I found the, uh, the visits, um, Funnily enough, not a huge amount uh, in Dublin. I don't ever remember anybody, a YouTube fan, calling to the door of our studio in John Rogerson's Key at the time. But uh, my interaction with fans was more when I went and gave talks at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and, and uh, other situations where we signed books. That was when we had a more immediate uh, interaction with the fans. They, you know, we signed books afterwards and a lot of people came up to us and talked to us. You know, we were there for maybe an hour or two hours signing books, talking to people. Uh, it's interesting to get people's perspective on, on what you were doing. I'd also remind you of, uh, I think it was 2018, where you were invited to a show in New York um, as, a, as a guest of the band and uh, Bono drew some attention to you on the evening and you were featured on the big screen. Um, and then you said afterwards, people were saying hello on the streets of New York afterwards. Yeah, yeah, there was kind of a strange experience. It, 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 it was something that I probably would have avoided if I'd known about it. It was kind of carefully manipulated so that I was asked to come over to a certain area of, of the side of the stage. Stand on this X. Well, more or less, you know, it was kind of like, would you just stand here for a minute? And then, of course, the... the the spotlight sw- swung around in the whole thing. But um, the, the the crazy thing was, was that um, we walked from the venue to where the where the hotel was um, with thousands of fans and people stopping you every few minutes and saying, can we get a picture? And you're the guy, all this kind of stuff, you know. And it was kind of like slightly uh, unwanted attention, but at the same time, I suppose it was meant nobody was nasty about it and everybody was just trying to be nice and get an autograph or, or get a picture. So it was, it was, it was fine in the end. Charles asks any chance of an updated expanded stealing hearts book. Uh, I can't see that happening until perhaps they open their own, uh, permanent museum. Uh, and they might need a catalogue for that. Uh, and that would probably incorporate many of the elements of Stealing Hearts. But I, I think that Stealing Hearts was not uh, a massively successful um, book for us. We, 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 we sunk a lot of money um, into its printing and design and the whole thing. Um, and the initial sales were quite poor. So uh, it slowly sold out over the years on, online. Um, but to do it again would would you know it would have to be funded by a a publisher or the band or somebody outside of ourselves 
Yeah, it seemed it seemed like it just perhaps was the wrong kind of the wrong time to do it, which which sounds strange. But I think you know that the the desire for it now would be very different to to back then. Yeah, it was done to coincide with the exhibition in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame when the U two had their mm. exhibition there. We were given space as well to show the design. Yeah. We got a lot of posters yeah. and, and elements printed, and we put that up online. I would I would think if they ever got around to doing their museum in Dublin or ex- permanent exhibition in Dublin that it might be time then to kind of re- revisit aspects of the design. We've had a lot of questions about the book and I think the other thing to say is like there's a lot there was a lot of resources put into putting that together there's a lot of permissions to get and uh, the logistics of it were quite were quite were quite complex. Yeah, it was printed in printed in the states. Uh, it it is a it's a six color book. It's four color process plus gold and silver. So it was quite a complicated book to do and we did uh, a hardback and then a softback edition of it but um you know except for a few copies that i might have in my collection and or sean or whatever it's pretty much um sold out completely you see the occasional copy on online from somebody selling it on yeah uh Jani or Yanni perhaps asks about anton not being happy with the multiple images for octon baby and you mentioned this of course in the episode he wanted a single image. Um, do you, do you, uh, we, we, we touched on this in the episode, but um, she asks, or he asks, I don't know, Yanni, Yanni, um, which images were under consideration to be used or decided to go that way? Um, I don't think any of the images, uh, single images were under consideration uh, for an option. Uh, I think that there were certain ones that were liked. I think an image of the band in the Trabant, either the one you, that was cut up in four parts for the for the single, or one of the, of ones with the band facing forward. They were possibilities. Um, it was more just it. that he resisted the idea of the grid rather than having one particular image that was um, swaying. Kind of. Uh, well, he wanted one single image because yeah. that, that's the way his, 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 he likes to see his photography used. Um, but yeah. from the very beginning, there was, uh, I remember, a resistance from Bono to say, no, that's not going to happen, Anton. It's going to be this. It's going to yeah. be some kind of collage is okay. what way we're going to go with it. All right. I'm flying through these now. Um, Bob asks, what inspires your work? Is it always music or musical? Uh, not always the music, no. Um, sometimes I've worked on a, a projects where I haven't heard the music. The music has either been recorded or it isn't ready to listen to. Um, so uh, what I rely on then is a conversation with uh, members of the band or the artist to get a feeling of what they feel uh, they want to do in terms of a, a, what they want to achieve with the cover. And from that conversation, I can start working uh, on, on ideas. Sean asks, um, and this is a good question, actually. Um, could you please talk a bit more about the original island sleeve that was rejected for Unforgettable Fire? Any specific details you remember, images, graphics, and why the band didn't like it? Um, simply because they were... Uh, I, my memory of seeing them and, and what, was well-designed covers. Uh, I know one was a aerial view of Hiroshima with a bomb... Uh, site target over over that particular area where the bomb was dropped um and uh i just think they felt they felt they were uh either too specific in 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 that one interpretation of the unforgettable fire or the graphics were simply not what in any way in keeping with what they were up to now as a band and uh, they just didn't uh relate to any of the options that were shown to them yeah uh, Kevin asks, 
what have you enjoyed most in your almost 50 years of being around you too? Can you maybe, is there a, is there a, it's maybe hard to draw a single, single thing. Uh, quite, yes, it would be. But I mean, I, I uh, value the uh, friendship with Anton and the friendship with the band. Uh, very highly i think that they were they brought me to places that i probably wouldn't have gone at that particular time like you know morocco and 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 and, and the states and various other places that we we, we photographed so uh, and i i always enjoyed those trips um i was trying to do my best as a component of that of that team to to make suggestions or to to uh, um check out way, the way things were going and and I was very much included in all that on all those conversations so those creative times together were the highlights of my working relationship with with the band and following on from that Joe has a question um he asks is there something about the band that's not well known that will surprise us uh I think the band is so well known there's probably not a great deal uh, that you you I could say that would make um, seem a surprise to anybody or, or or to do it um their personalities are very much I think as as people would know um Larry is generally speaking as you say the drummer in the band who wants to play drums and and uh, has a, a strong contribution but not to the same degree that uh Bono and Edge are continually pushing uh, forward to try and push you forward as well as themselves um and adam is always very thoughtful uh, as is as his age they were the most they would think very strongly about what was we were talking about what the option where is but um, um i think one thing I, if i was gonna uh, if i was gonna drop something in there that maybe is interesting would be you know you've gotten a christmas card from from all four members for the last 40 odd years you know like they're very they very much kind of maintain their 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 kind of like friendship in that way like you always get a message on your birthday and you know like they're, they're very kind of yeah we, in that we, sense. We, we maintain that i always try to do that uh i always send messages to to adam and bono and on, on their birthdays and um you know i've i've tried to 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 uh maintain I, because they're where they are and where they live and and they're not i don't often um for instance walk in somewhere and find them there um if they're if we're meeting now it's generally a specific occasion that we're going along to like a like a gig backstage at a gig or or how it would be but i mean i've never i've never i've never um lost in thought lost the process to say that i am a a graphic designer working with the band i am not their best buddy uh, you know and, and the person who's going to hang around with them every every five minutes and the, the relationship over the years has worked because of that because i you know i have a function and, and i know what that function is but um it's done with a lot of um, respect and a lot of uh friendship with them all uh, to do that and indeed in the past with paul mcginnis and, and other part of the management team and Louise Kelly and people that I got very close to um Kanda Batashi you know these are people we worked with very very much on a, on a daily basis um Mark asks um was there any sleeve that members were more particularly uh driving forces and then was there any album cover that any individual members were reluctant to release and had to be convinced by others no, I think that the when when we came to the change, but into color that was Acton Baby, there was a, a large amount of influence. Uh, I think Bono was very much the driving force between getting that right and getting the right the right look. Not so much in the choice of imagery that was kind of left up to us, but in in making it work as as a a patchwork of of 
um, imagery that would give a big picture rather than a, a single image. I think that was one that they were very much involved in. But as I say, every single sleeve has has a strong input from the wall. Uh, well, actually, this question has been asked a couple of times of you, and I just want to make it clear that uh, you did, reti- you know, step back from working in 2015. Um, I, I, you know, I've had a lot of questions about the songs of Surrender Sleeve, um, but, you know, you weren't involved in that. So No, I can't comment on that because I wasn't part of that process at all. Yeah. And some, I think what is interesting is that your you, your last official sleeve to work on was the Songs of Innocent Sleeves. I think I really at that point was was mainly driven by, by Jefferson Hack. But just um, after your, your official retirement, the band had asked you to work on a video for what was going to be the intermission video for the first um, so, uh, uh, Songs of Innocence tour. Well, they wanted a kind of a punk punk retrospective and they thought you you would be good to do that. And we did put that together. Yes, and we it, did. We uh, And I think it looked great. Uh, I'm not sure. It did actually appear on a couple of shows. I did see it. As, as, a couple uh, of the first Canadian shows. It was it was definitely used. Yeah, it was used and it was very, and it was, and it held, held the attention. But funnily enough, uh, one of the comments I got from one of the management team at the time was that it worked too well, that they want people, they wanted us more ambient kind of um, yeah. intermission so that people go go out to the merchandising stands and, and get merchandising and that what we had done was something that people were standing and watching. Um, yeah. It was a shame. It, it, and also there was a, a, an issue about getting the clearances for every piece of footage that we put together. Yeah. Justin asks about the Joshua Tree singles. We kind of mentioned them already, but uh, he asked where they all taken in Bodhi. Um, and yeah, they were all they were all pictures from that shoot. They were taken on that shoot. Most of them were taken in in the desert, and, and not uh, one or two are Bodhi, and one or two are. are, yeah. are. The, the the one like of Edge is actually in the desert. That's an actual kind of migrant workers yeah. shack that I think he's standing close to. Yeah, and he asked about the reissue package that came out. And I assume that's the one that that maybe won the German Design Awards. But uh, he asked, "Are you involved on that?" And uh, of course, you weren't involved in the in the reissue campaign. But you you know, it's based on the original designs. Yeah, yeah, they were all based on the designs. I mean, the whole look and feel typography is exactly as per the original concept, but it's it's yeah. redesigned by Sean. I've got a question from Bernard and also Mark, which kind of capture the same question. And this is a broad, simple question, so I'm not sure how best you want to answer this. But the question just um, centers around your role with U2, or how did your role with U2 shift following the release of Pop and then you know mark asks why no full episodes for each album you worked with past year 2000 say so i think that this is something we address in the second portion of this last chapter but i will first say that i definitely didn't want to take on the full catalog because it would have simply taken too much time i wanted to draw some kind of arc and simple point A to point B that could tell our story effectively. And I felt like Boy to Pop had this potency, and we'll talk about that some more. I had this potency, and I had this sense of journey and discovery and enigma and and something just a little bit um, more interesting to me than the post-pop era. Um, not to diminish that, of course. Um, I think it, it, it didn't shift in the sense that, you know, I suddenly uh, dropped out of the picture. Um, I was definitely uh, 
in and around every single uh, album project from that point onwards. Um, quite often, um, myself and Sean would go to meet meetings in the UK or in Europe with the band to talk about it. So I, you know, I was very much a a participant in the whole process. The the shift probably came that after um, Actung Baby, um, there was two people involved in the process rather than one person. So um, and and Sean was a little bit more au fait with a uh, the the computer than I was at that point in in, in time, plus the fact that um, I was also the creative director of the design company and was all involved in to a degree in keeping that company going and 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 with various meetings. So I wasn't able to uh, generate as much time. As it was, and also the the process of what you're doing changed because when we did sort of uh, bench artwork, we continually worked together on. You know, I would have worked on the bench artwork right through, but once the computer came into it, the computer to a large degree is a solitary process where one person is working on something, and they will they will consult and share and say, "Look, this is where I'm at. This is where this is going. What do you think of that? Any suggestions?" And you work together on on those things, but you are not working two people sitting beside each other at a computer. You know, you're you're, you're individually working on various aspects of what's there. Did the 2000s era, and in particular with the volume of material required with the singles, etc., etc., feel a little bit more like assembly line at all? Um, I, I wouldn't totally agree with that it became assembly line because each 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 individual cover became a challenge to to uh, listen carefully to what the music was going to say, where, where, where the band wanted to be. Um, uh, no Lion Horizon, uh, all that you can can leave behind. All those album covers had a specific genesis in 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 what they were trying to achieve at the time, um, and I think there was as much work in those as there was in any of the other uh, covers in in what mm. we were doing. So I don't think we kind of stepped back in any way from because we were at that point in the later point. The probably the shift probably became is that the band were less based in Dublin. Um, as they were before they were recording in different places and different territories. So the time we had with them probably became less uh, face-to-face and more you know, communication through other means. So therefore, that that in its in essence uh, has a means of moving you away from, from that uh, argument and communication and, and, and uh, mm. discussing the ideas. You kind of come up with some ideas, you present them and you, and, and you, you get a reaction and then you, you revise those based on the reaction and then you go forward to, to the next stage. So it is um, a changing process as you go along. Um, but I, I think we still were as committed because we knew at the time uh, on some of those album covers, the later ones, they had also engaged other designers and other design companies to to come up with some ideas for the for, for the sleeves uh, and fortunately we our sense of the band was stronger than probably some of the other outside people involved and we meant we you know we kept those covers we made all those covers are, are from our own creative sense yeah i mean i think i think we'll we'll handle some of this in the next portion but um it is all very interesting um and I think it's time to wrap this up and I would have liked to wrap it up with actually a question of my own um, passengers, which was, you know, not considered a, a strictly U2 uh, record. And of course, it's under the different name. But am I right in thinking that you didn't work on that sleeve? Uh, yeah, yeah, we did. Actually, there was a 
I don't know, it was a fan club version. It was a version of the of them all dressed as chefs uh, walking down the street, which we did design on that. But the actual album was, I think, done by Island Records again. And that concludes the first portion of this final chapter, the epilogue. That is the Q&A. Thank you so much for your questions. We hope that we answered them to a satisfactory degree. I apologise for the few questions we did not get to answer. We appreciate your questions, we just could not fit them in. If you'd like to ask Steve any more questions, you can always email him directly, contact at stevenaveril.com, and he might be able to answer them for you. So, immediately available is the second portion, which is the final chat with myself and Steve. So you can take a break, or you can go straight in. But um, we thank you once again. Surrender.